Classic Policy Radio, the show where comics and politics meet. This is the show for people who know that comics could be so much more than we expect them to be. And we have an amazing couple of guests joining us this evening to talk about their new series. But first, I want to introduce my special guest co-host of the evening, Logan Dalton. Say hello. Hi, I'm, I'm Logan. I write for Graphic Policy all the time. Um, big Kim and Kim fan. Uh, I would totally get t-shirts if they existed, but yeah, for snapbacks. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> and when we found out that Magdalene Visaggio, the writer of Kim and Kim, wanted to join us for another episode, I said we need to get Logan on the show because he will be beside himself with excitement, which is accurate. <laughs> and not only do we have Magdalene Visaggio, the writer of Kim and Kim, joining us this evening, but we have Eric Donovan, who is her artist on the brand new series that she's joining us this evening to talk about, which is called Quantum Teens Are Go. This is how I explain, well, this is not how I explain, this is how they explain quantum teens ago, which is that mad science is the punkest shit there is. Teenage sweethearts <laughs> Matt and Sumesh spend their nights breaking into abandoned super labs to steal the parts they need to build a time machine, and they've just found them the most important part. But mysterious entities keep trying to stop them turning it on. Now all they've got to do is hang on long enough to figure out why. Magdalene Visaggio and Eric Donovan bring you a high-acting adventure full of robots, muscle cars, and queer-ass skater punks in Quantum Teens Argo, the brand-new series from Black Mask Studios. Um, Magdalene is joining us to talk about the series. She's been on before to talk about Kim and Kim, which is another favorite of folks on the site and on the podcast, also for Black Mask. Uh, Magdalene is the writer and creator of Quick Kim and Kim, and Quantum Teens Ago for Black Mask Studios, a former wannabe academic theologian. She turned to writing comics after dropping out of grad school, which is a good decision. She actually started writing comics when she was eight, but honestly, those are pretty terrible. She tells me uh, she has contributed work to DC Comics' Shade the Changing Girl, which was really interesting, alongside her participation in the Dirty Diamonds uh, comic anthology. She's a contributing writer at Paste Magazine, and Magdalena lives in Manhattan, Eric lives in Savannah, Georgia, and draws comics. He is known for his work on Mimetic, Cognitive, Constantine, and the Eisner, Harvey and Eisner nominated Into the Dark Anthology, amongst others. His hands are rarely free of ink. Day Logan is a data entry administrator by Nike Race about comics for graphic policy. So thank you, everyone, for joining us. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hey, welcome. Hey. So first things first, I'd love to hear from you, Mags and Eric. Like, how did this... Uh, comic come to be? Actually, first things first, I need to inform Logan that there are Kim and Kim t-shirts. Okay. We have them yeah, generally yeah. at like black mask booths at conventions. Oh, so we were okay, just talking cool. about how badly we need those t-shirts before the podcast went live, people. But you've right. heard it here. You can get a Kim and Kim t-shirt at Black Mask. Are, are you guys going to be a t-shirt too? Sense. Are you guys going to be uh, no, I'm, I'm going to be at Emerald City. I actually got approved for a table at T2E2, but I cannot actually afford it. So. Oh, man. Uh, I can't do these West Coast signs. Yeah, me neither. Keeping it local. So tell us about how so, Quantum Teams or Go came to be. Okay, so it's a little bit of a, a roundabout story. Um, <laughs> you guys know the adventures of Pete and Pete? I do, and I have a story about that that I'll share later. Oh, I, I, I watched that at a convention once. I was like super drunk. You want to watch it? It's like an old Nick. It's like an old Nick show. Yeah. yeah so yes. that was yeah. one of my absolute favorite, favorite, favorite shows. And 
at some point, like mid 2015. God, no, I must've been, this must've been even earlier, like early 2015. I was just trying to like, think of like, <clears throat> pardon me, like short comics, um, like anthology comics, like 10 pages. And one of them was like, I thought it'd be really cool to try to do a book that cap or a, a short that captured what, what Pete and Pete felt like, which was his kind of suburban absurdism. And I kind of landed really hard on the idea of what if you have these, like these, like a middle schoolers, who are building a working spaceship in their backyard. <laughs> and I kind of didn't really have a direction for it. And the more, every time I thought about it, it was just kind of this big, like, ill-defined amorphous idea. Like all I had was that much. Um, and like some images. <clears throat> and so I kind of put it on the back burner. And then um, earlier in 2016, like really early 2016, I was, trying to think of something actually that I wanted to pitch to Rosie press um, for fresh romance. And I started, I sort of returned to this idea and that's how the relationship between Nat and Sumash, the, the main characters who are boyfriend and girlfriend sort of came into the mix. But the more I started working on the story, the more I realized it was not a romance. It was just a, it was a move. It was a, 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 a book with a romance at the center of it. Um, but it wasn't about the romantic part. It's just about how they, you know, sort of find family in each other. Um, so that's sort of where the germ of the idea came from and how it sort of slowly evolved into what it's become. Um, but it, I, I didn't really set out to do the sort of abandoned super lab, you know, DIY breaking into things. That was just kind of this uh, angle I landed on to uh, sort of give me an end to the story and give it some tension. Well, it makes a lot of sense because, like, I love about the, the description of the series that, like, mad science is punk as fuck because, like, it, it is. And some of there have been really great, like, cultural moments where those two kinds of genre stories have been told in one place, but not for a while. Um, it's, it's really, where else? overdue to have a reunion. Well, I think a little bit of, like, the, a lot of, like, the 80s, um, yeah, the cyberpunk like, stuff. Oh, yeah, you're totally Gibbons right. And like, young genius. No crash and all that, yeah. But, yeah, exactly. But also, like, a bratty kids' movies, right? Like, yeah, like, young genius, like, like um, oh, God. The, the, Weird the boys, science. They make a woman. Thank Weird you. science, Weird yeah. Science. <laughs> but, uh, I don't know, I even, even like, think Rico of that. Man, like, you can have, like, you know, um, a certain combination of this sort of sci-fi and, like, DIY punkness. I, 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 so, yeah, it's been overdue. It's been a long time. Time to bring it back. It makes a lot of sense to me. Um, so yeah, why did you guys decide to make the setting L.A.? Because, like, L, I mean, so much sci-fi has mm. been doing in L.A. It's been done before. Why did you guys decide to do L.A. as a setting? Um, well, originally I was working with another artist on this who lived in Los Angeles, and I thought it would be a really cool idea to get out of my comfort zone and hit the West Coast, you know? Um, and California has this real is really romantic in my head in a lot of ways, but also I know it's got like, it's got all this history and culture associated with it that isn't the sort of the, the romantic West. Um, and so I just kind of wanted to sort of hit this sort of cultural milieu that, that um, isn't really my scene. And just instead of doing something that was set in New York or in Virginia, which is the, you know, the two places I'm from um, to, to, California, I just felt like it was bringing something unique to it, um, like a whole kind of 
there was a kind of like a laid back West Coast chill to it that I really wanted that I was really um, um, interested in. Mm-hmm. And how did Eric? Well, it's, it's get got a lot of cool, project? you know. Well, sorry, go ahead. LA just has no, a no. really nice um, that whole area. This really interesting mix of heavy suburban and urban areas, and then also natural environment with the hills and the mountains and the parks around the area, um, which is also something that you don't get visually in a, a place like, say, New York City, where everything is so built up. It's all just the, you know, the buildings and the city and the streets itself. And I think that is something about LA as a setting, especially for this story, um, that actually does visually impact um, how how the reader perceives the world, but also in the way that some of the actual places that they visit, that kind of dichotomy is played with. So, Yeah, I really yeah, wanted I was, to... I, I was really uh, I like geeking out when I'll you guys ahead, did Arclight. Oh, when you guys did, like, Arclight Cinema, because I, I lived in L.A. when I was younger, and, like, Arclight Cinemas were everywhere, and I'm like, yay, they're raiding the old movie theater. That was, that was cool. What's really funny is that's entirely coincidental. I have no idea where I got huh? the name Arclight for that lab. No idea whatsoever. It just kind of felt Los Angeles. I must have heard it at some point. Um, it just, like, felt appropriate. Um, so I stuck it in there. But, it's I mean, awesome. like, I worked really hard at trying totally to make... intentional. <laughs> I worked really hard at trying to make it feel like, um, like the story was situated in a real place. Um, and so, like, I spent a lot of time sort of you know, looking at maps of LA and trying to get a, a, a sense of the different neighborhoods. And I just wanted it to feel like it was really in this lived in part of the world um, where people are, you know, referencing local geography and, and um, the way the city sort of ebbs and flows around the landscape factors into the story. I definitely picked up on that. Um, and it's funny. Because you haven't seen like, anything yeah, Tim, yet. It's all about, well, I have in terms of the True. settings and in the opening scene. Like, I recognize when you're descending upon descending upon the city, and, like, there's just something about that particular kind of, like, view from the woods looking down on the city skyline that's, like, that's just what we see in our art about Los Angeles by and large. But I think, like, it makes sense for it also just as an 80s punk Thing. Not that this is particularly. It's just. It is very punk. It's not. It's not particularly 80s or anything. It is punk in general. But um. But to, like me thinking about the the movies that coming out like suburbia taking place in those settings as well. And there's something well, it's really about interesting how you to have. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting that you mentioned the 80s too, because there was a, a lot of conversation really early on. I can't remember if this was Eric or if this was with Jude, the artist who was originally attached to it. Oh, uh, we um, definitely about, had. Like, when, when we were going to set it. I just couldn't remember. I couldn't remember when we were going to set it. Like there was conversations. Do we set it in the eighties? Do we set it in the nineties? And ultimately it's in kind of a, kind of a, anytime it could, if an iPhone mm-hmm. shows up at one point. So it's, it definitely takes place now. But um, other than that one reference, the whole thing's kind of timeless. Like the most prominent vehicle uh, in the, uh, in the book, he has Wayne's, a, 1981, Wayne's, uh, a 1981 Pontiac Firebird. Firebird. Lovely car. <laughs> this is actually something which is full of machines, right? I mean, and if if when I mean, we have uh, a few kinds of 
robots than we see already in issue one, and I'm sure that it's just going to keep growing and growing. Did you guys grow up with a lot of, like, Megazords? Or <laughs> what kind of robots are you inspired by? Uh, I definitely I don't even know growing what... up. The, um, you know, the original animated Transformer movie I saw when I was really young, um, probably five or six, old enough that uh, I could remember a lot of it and it really impacted me, but also young enough that I probably didn't understand everything that was going on. Um, But I think that really sort of started it for me visually. And then from there, you know, growing up as well, that was during the Toonami Cartoon Network era of anime where you had, you know, Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball Z and you also had <laughs> Gundams, the, all the different Gundams and Gundam Wings and um, Outlaw Star and Cowboy Bebop and all that stuff anime-wise definitely, you know, heavily influenced me. Um, and there were some other things, too, that were also some of that Japanese, like, mecha influence um, PlayStation games like Xenogears and Xenosaga and Zone of Enders and that kind of thing that just all sort of put a bit of a stamp on my brain and influence that. Um, I think that, um, I think I'm a little bit older than Eric. My TV influences are a little bit different. I remember the late eighties television pretty well. <clears throat> so, I mean, my robots are transformers, um, really early power Rangers. Um, Oh, yeah. There were some really interesting robots in the fucking X-Men cartoon that weren't Sentinels, um, just kind of mm-hmm. like random ass security droids. And I guess most of the robots that you're going to see in Quantum Teens are random ass security droids. Um, because <laughs> I love just like, I love like hordes of anonymous mooks. Um, so you remember, like, oh, and Helatron, old... though. And Helatron, though. Yeah, when he shows up, when she shows up briefly, um, <laughs> She was supposed to be a much bigger character, and I wasn't able to fit her into a four-issue series that was already getting very jam-packed. Um, but, I mean, like, I don't know if you remember the old, like, uh, of course you do, the Ninja Turtles cartoon show, how the foot soldiers were all, like, robots. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, because you can show blood. Probably, yeah, so I'm right, definitely right. probably pulling from that. But you can show sentient robots exploding. Yeah, yeah, Wolverine oh, yeah. going all out like that's, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Even though even though I grew up on X Men Evolution, use his claws because of standards yeah. and practices. I, I yes, I've learned this listening to Jay and Miles explain the X Men. My childhood <laughs> makes so much more sense now. Um, that's super cool. I definitely could see the, the, the. How did you guys like when you're working? You know, with Magdalena being you know the writer and Eric as the artist. Like, how did you guys develop the aesthetic for the book as a whole in terms of? Not just the robots, but like the characters and their styles. Um, well, I basically just gave them to Eric and said, "Do what you want." I kind of write about, like they said, I write out character sketches, um, which are just kind of here's the kind of person that this person is. Um, I don't put anything, any specifics in there um, for like how they should look, and then Eric kind of ran with it. Yeah, I mean, essentially, Mags, like like you said, the character sketches I, I think of I guess the description same thing you know but nothing like you know they have blonde hair and blue eyes or he's dark skinned or you know any of these kind of things it was just this is the character and I kind of knew um you know obviously Sumesh he's uh you know Indian descent and Nat I you know had an idea in my mind of who she was she could have been anyone but I had this idea of you know her with the blonde hair and then 
just reading over Mag's description of sort of who that person was, then I kind of take that and try to translate that fashion-wise into, okay, so they're high schoolers and also, you know, what would they be wearing? What's something that makes sense for this character? And that's, you know, where Nat ends up with all her different, um, you know, fish nets or um, like, uh, uh, what do you call them, the leggings, um, yeah, the skateboard. Definitely. She's got that whole like skater punk attitude, and then Sumesh is also kind of punky, but he's also kind of like that nerdy computer geek type too. He's like, he's he's like how I that, like, I love it. I love Aww. it. His little Star Wars, his little Star Wars tee, like yeah. Sumesh is really math core. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I know. I, I love that but scene it, where yeah. he's trying to like explain science, and he just like freaks out. And that was you know, <laughs> like, really endeared the character to me. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank on you. The, just on the subject of um, Eric's portrayal of Nat, um, I've actually been really, really impressed with how Eric has been physically portraying a teenage trans woman um, mm-hmm. in her late teens, but relatively, relatively early on in her transition. So. Like, it was really important to me to make sure that Nat was, like, embodied really realistically so that she didn't just read as just, like, a cis woman who we were saying was trans, which is kind of what we did with Kim Q in Kim and Kim, um, mm-hmm. which works there because the science fiction setting for that, um, you can kind of believe whatever, uh, that she could look however the hell she wants. Right. But, but Nat exists in something that's very much analogous to the real world. And so I didn't want her to be veering too far off into sort of fantasy transition land. I kind of wanted a character mm-hmm. who you kind of couldn't ignore was trans, but did it, but, but still read as a, as a girl. Um, and I've been, mm-hmm. I've been very happy with um, his sort of sensitivity to what that would sort of mean um, physically. That's really important. Yeah. And I, I, I get it in terms of, like, how you can read her that way. And a lot of comics don't have that, I guess. Yeah, I mean, definitely early on. Yeah. And early on, we definitely had some conversations about that, you know, as I'm developing her look and, you know, kind of how we're going to see her and how we're going to essentially shoot her in the way, you know, all that stuff, camera, camera angles, whatever. So. Mm Mm-hmm. Clothing. Um, so guys, uh, oh, sorry. Um, why did you guys decide to make the main characters like high schoolers? Like, why that age? Um, I don't know. Like I said, because like in the original <laughs> idea, they were actually middle schoolers, and I guess I just oh, aged them up a little bit to make the. I guess I just aged them up a little bit to make the um the story to work a little bit better. I guess just thinking through it. I knew I wanted Nat to be trans um, because, like, surprise, surprise, I write trans characters. Um, And so, like, doing her as, like, a a 13-year-old trans girl, well, that's not something I – I get to a certain point and I kind of can't wrap my head around it anymore because, like, the experience is so different if you're transitioning that young. Um, And, I mean, like, I tried to transition in high school. Um, It didn't take – but. So, like, I can kind of get into Nat's headspace. Um, mm-hmm. So, I guess I aged him up for the, for the relationship and so that I would have a better understanding on my main characters. 
And I also think to an extent too, it gives them a little bit more, a little bit more freedom in the way that they are able to move around their neighborhood or city, um, which especially for a setting that's not, I mean, you know, we talked about stranger things, me and Mags, um, right when we first started putting this together, cause that had just come on and it made me think back to, you know, of course the Spielberg stuff and stand by me and these other movies that I'd seen growing up or, you know, years ago and how different it used to be with how kids were allowed to run around the, you know, their town, you know, explore their environment to how, you know, our culture views children running free now where you see two kids walking down the side of the road and you, you know, you call the cops, like there's, there's kids abandoned on the side of whatever. Um, <laughs> that's, you know, this, this real stuff that sadly happened. Yeah. So I think having them a little older, it gives them a freedom that you don't question in the setting that they're in to be able to, to do all of the stuff that they end up doing. And not yeah, have and the parents, really... you know, getting into like what's going on in the garage, Sumesh? Like what is all this strange <laughs> Yeah. Stuff? Yeah, and it's really important too that um they were never going to be adults. That never factored into my thinking to pace them up like that. Um I kinda wanted them to be constrained by circumstances that were out of their control in a way that kids are. Yeah. Um and so that kind of explains the desperate actions that they take. They all kind of depend on them not having other outlets. Yeah, yeah. And then I guess just me reading it, I definitely feel like this sort of being like a high school outsider drama fits with stories that a lot of comics folks like us enjoy. I mean, you it's know. definitely my experience. Yeah, but, but it's definitely well, like a whole mean, obvious, like, geek sorts of jocks thing. Like, it's more, I, I guess. I guess it's kind of, more, uh, I guess, complicated because um, you have, like, the science stuff that is also kind of, like, like a political rebellion, sort of, and I kind of like that. And it's not just, like, kids fooling around. It's like they're... <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it's really, it's intelligence is essentially what kind of determines, it's intelligence and determination to, you know, explore and scavenge these parts. But this XE community is all, you know, people who are smart enough, basically, to come up with these you know, technologies or inventions or whatever. Um, so kind of your age doesn't matter as much as what you're able to make does. Yeah, it's, the whole thing is that it's not so much like people who are smart enough to like get the theoretical under as much as people who are able to know enough to know that if I hook this up to this, this will probably happen. Hmm. <laughs> And then just like running so, with that until it stops working. Yeah. And, and I like that there's like one of the conflicts is uh, gatekeeping, like later on in the yeah. story. Like I'm like thinking this character is going to be some cool like Furiosa type, but then they're like major gatekeeper. I'm like, that's, that's like a real problem, like in everywhere. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Nazira is my favorite though. She's, she, she actually ends up playing a really big role in the story. Oh, okay. Okay. I kind of so hate her now, she's but not just I'll word a for it. She's not just a gatekeeper. She's, she's got a lot going on. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it, it, pays, it pays out later, and you'll see. The gatekeeping makes a lot of sense, but I also, you know, I, I like that read of it, too, because that's something that I constantly see in comics, and I'm sure Mags has experienced, too. 
Yeah, I'm like happy the to whole... see a woman with short hair and muscles in a comic for a change. Well, well, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I have a massive crush on Zero. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. I think everyone should have yeah. a massive crush on Zero because she's fucking awesome. But in terms, but yeah, yeah her, her tattoo sleeve is amazing. <laughs> in terms of gaping, I thought it was actually really important to kind of underline their youth. To have someone, hey, you kids are smart, keep trying, you know, but you're not <laughs> yeah. ready yet. Right. And, right. the whole, and the whole thing is that, like, I also want people to not dismiss her when she says that because she mm-hmm. is this position of authority. She has been doing this. She's not full of shit. So the question is, is she gatekeeping? Is she just kind of being shitty to them because she feels superior? Or does she have more – is she thinking about more – than that. Just for context for folks who haven't had a chance to check out the series yet, which actually, wait, the series is, uh, when is the series being released? Oh, February 22nd. Ah, oh, okay, so no one has read the series except for us. Um, we're talking about characters who are countering an older um, robot with and dealing with questions of like what you're is supposed to do when you're new in the scene, and I think I think what Logan raised about gatekeeping is an interesting, interesting point. But I guess I'm just trying to think about how to explain the folks who haven't read the comic yet. Um, I actually don't want to drive too down into the details on this for that reason, just because I know folks haven't had a chance to read it yet. So I'm yeah. trying to think. Like, yeah, for sure. For 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 folks who haven't really like followed you guys' work yet. I mean, I think one of the things that's, you know, really important that I see throughout is just writing really relatable, youthful characters who speak in, like, really funny but believable voices. Um, and that that's really a point that you guys consistently have in this comic. But I also think, you know, it was true, Eric, when you were working on Mimetic with uh, James Tinney mm-hmm. I know, yep. I know that uh, Logan is a big fan of that. Too. Yeah, the book, the book scares me like all the time. <laughs> like I'm afraid, like I'm gonna be on some dank meme page and it's gonna like take over the world. And it's that book haunts me. Yeah, you and me both, man. <laughs> yeah, basically, for folks who don't know, Mimetic is a like a horror sci-fi moment of a meme that takes over the world. It's disgusting body horror. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. It's it that psychological horror of you know how how quickly something could get into your brain, and then obviously yeah, at the end there's just some some creepy body horror stuff too. So it wouldn't be James well, Tinian without mm-hmm. body horror. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, God. it's funny you say mimetic because actually the um the very first thing that me and James ever worked on was a short in the in the dark anthology. Um, and it was following high school kids as well um, in school, basically as this like strange creatures kind of going through this group of friends and, and doing something. Um, it was it was a pretty cool story to work on. But yeah, there's definitely something about teenage characters, I think, that can be very relatable because there's enough going on with them that an adult can read them and be like, yeah, I, like I remember that or, you know, that <laughs> drama makes sense. And then also... Maybe someone who's a little bit younger, not even the character's age yet, is able to look at that character and be like, "Yeah, I can totally mm-hmm. relate to how that character is feeling as well." So. Yeah. Yeah. The so cool thing about teenagers is you can kind of write really them like adults. Oh, sorry. 
you can kind of yeah. write teenagers like adults, which is, a, a, I think, a, just a big part of the appeal. You can just write them as but really, really dumb like, grown-ups. You, <laughs> you also actually make them sound like, like, I mean, look, I'm not an expert who spends tons of time with teenagers, but they do sound authentically like young people to me, and I certainly see plenty of comics <clears throat> by older authors that are completely out of touch and seem oh like they haven't ever talked Archie. to a young person. Well, not necessarily into the specifics of who in such a way that like, not be able to <laughs> I'm, I'm ter- oh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible. respond on that front. But like, but I definitely think like, you know, I don't know, like, are you guys, do you guys spend any time really talking with like the younger, the younger kids to get, to get stuff right? And it's like research Getting to know the or kids. are we just recently young um, enough to get it? I just live on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. basically. And Tumblr. <laughs> As I don't know, like Tumblr, Twitter, right? Yeah. Twitter has destroyed how I talk. Um, <laughs> Me too. So, like, I didn't used to... So, I, I don't think I could have done this voice two years ago um, before I let Twitter demolish my vocabulary and speech patterns. And I started up and selecting everything I said. Um, so... I mean, like, I, I, my, um, my, um, I, my sister-in-law is 18, um, so I pay attention to how she talks. And there's some people I know on Twitter who are, like, literal teenagers um, who I started following because they're just really good artists. And I was just, like, wanting to be, like, encouraging and shit. Um, mm-hmm. And, I mean, I guess I must be paying attention to how they're talking if I'm nailing it, but... Yeah, I think it definitely matters. And social media is a space where, like, people from different ages can encounter each other and kind of wrap our heads around yeah, it Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, I mean, I started writing about comments when I was, like, 19, and a lot of people on Twitter were cool and about it. And, like, Karen Gillan's Young Adventures was out, so it was, like, the perfect age for that. And I probably would have liked this book, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. I kind of hate it when, like, writers, like, kind of write teens down or write it like they're – Silver Age characters or whatever, and just kind of gets my nerves. Mm-hmm. It makes yeah. me laugh. It's, re- it's easy to fuck up. It really is. So that's one of the things I think you guys really, you know, it's been a nice job on here is making it making it all work. I think obviously anybody who's a fan of Kim and Kim is going to enjoy this comic, but I think that like for folks who aren't already reading Kim and Kim, um, <laughs> this is definitely like a more grounded in this world but still like really funny and um imaginative series to get into yeah i think the key to to sort of not writing your characters down is to respect them um as people who are making rational decisions or at least what they perceive to be rational decisions for rational reasons i think pardon me i think it's really easy to turn your characters into caricatures um, or to get dismissive of them. So like to go back to Kim and Kim, um, Kim Q is a very rash, thoughtless, irresponsible person <laughs> who dives in without considering the consequences pretty much all the time. Um, she is extremely short sighted. She, uh, sort of is constantly making the worst decisions, but at no point am I losing respect for her as a character because I'm in her head. I don't know why she's doing mm. these things. And she's not, she's not a thoughtless person. 
she's just a person who has a lot of difficulty thinking a couple of steps ahead for very specific reasons in her history. You know, like there's a, there, when you know why people think the way they do, it's really difficult to, to be dismissive. Um, Absolutely. So, and so, yeah, the, the, turn on with, um, is just making sure that I'm respecting Nat and I'm respecting Sumedge, even though um, I don't really agree with almost anything either of them is doing. Like, I think they're both making <laughs> almost just a, a per- constant series of incredibly immature, short-sighted decisions. It's also appropriate because they're, they're 17. Yeah. Yeah. I know I there's been at least a few, like, yeah. moments where Mags and I are chatting with each other about some scene or page I've just drawn from the script or whatever. And we're like, man, like, Sumesh is such a dick right now. And we're like, I know, <laughs> he really is. But also, I kind of love him. And it's like, yeah, I know, he's so great. Sumesh is such an asshole. <laughs> yeah, he's just, so he's like... just this prickly dickwad. Yeah, like, he doesn't interact but... with his friends. He's just working on his projects all day. Yeah. <laughs> well, and like, and like, his, like, a time. Yeah. Oh, and like, and we were talking, we were talking about like, like, uh, the the jock nerd, you know, distinction in in high, you know, sort of high school thing. And like, we made a point of making, you know, sort of Sumesh's foster brother Martin this kind of like like California surfer dude, muscly jock guy. Um, yeah. But he's like the nicest guy in the world, and. He's just constantly trying to be nice to Sumesh. And Sumesh <laughs> is just jumping down his throat at every opportunity. I love that in so, I really do. Because it's true sometimes. It really is, you know? Uh, I think it's just, I Sumesh love, has just guy. got so much that he's unhappy about, you know? Like, mm-hmm. Sumesh is not a happy guy. And he just, he knows that the people he's living with aren't his family in this really big way. And so he constantly feels on the outs. He constantly feels like he's a charity case, and it makes him feel like trash. And so, like, anytime, you know, Martin is being nice to him, his immediate reaction is just, <clears throat> I'm just still a charity case. You don't really like me. Yeah. And then on top of that, he's always thinking about his, you know, his big project, his magnum opus. So there's that level of disconnect of where you're always kind of a little bit in a daydream of that, like, Wait, huh? What? What? What were you saying? Like, <laughs> yeah. So why is time travel those together? As opposed to like the other kinds of things one could have, one could be doing mad science in the name of. I, honestly, um. Okay, so when we when I was trying to think of the project that they'd be working on originally, it was just a spaceship, and for some reason that just didn't feel like enough to me because I was kind of like, well, what are they going to do once they get a spaceship? Like, where are they going to fucking go? Like they don't, know, they don't they don't know there's anything out there, right? Where are they gonna go? They're gonna fly around, they're gonna die in space. Um and that, I, that made me really uncomfortable. Um so I kinda landed on what if they're just building a TARDIS? You know, just something that can go anywhere, anytime. And once I made that decision, it just got a lot easier to talk about it as a time machine. Although, really, it, it's a time and space machine. It's a TARDIS. It can, it can go any place, any time. Interesting. And, I mean, it totally plays in with, you know, Sumesh's lack of what he feels like is his, you know, missing his parents, his biological family. Okay, maybe there's some way I could 
you know, maybe see them again or do something. And, you know, you're not thinking about timelines and paradoxes and all these things. He's 17 years old and he misses his parents, you know, so. Oh, my gosh. That was what I was wondering, actually, how much are the, how much are the specific sci-fi challenges of time travel's impact on the world actually part of this. But I don't want to spoil anything because – it's not an issue one, really, and I don't want to spoil, you know, too much into the future. Yeah. Honestly, if we get That's... a second volume, it'll play in. In the first volume, it's not a big deal. There's actually, like, no time travel in the first volume. It's about a time machine, not time travel. Got it. Yep. It's like building the thing. So this is, yeah. with, right. with Kim and Kim, right, you did a four-issue miniseries, and it was a huge hit, and now you're working on the next four-issue miniseries, and that sort of sounds like that's the cycle that you guys are, that Black Mask is doing for uh, comics it's putting out. What's it like sort of writing with that particular configuration of um, issues, like, in the cam, like, knowing that that's what you're making? Um, okay, cycles? well, I'm doing, I'm doing four issues for both issues, for both volumes that came in, came in four issues, quarantines. I have another thing coming up where I managed to wrangle six issues out of them by saying I cannot do the story in fewer issues, and they were on board. <laughs> um, nice. <laughs> but um, it's true. It was not me lying. Um, but I guess to answer your question, four issues is frankly a little tight. Um, yeah, we had to cut a lot of stuff. Yeah, like I said, there was like an entire like character who didn't make it into the final um, cut because there was just there was so much going on there was no room. And I the the, fir, the fifth issue, pardon the fourth issue, really would have been better served by a fifth um, to space out the action a little bit because it's, it's a lot that we have to jam in. And the issue ran long four pages, um, and it was still it was still uh, not quite enough. Um, but in terms of like getting four issues, it's 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 tight. Um, you have to be very economical with your storytelling. That's one of the reasons why for Kim and Kim, I went very episodic um, so that there's like a through line that holds each individual issue, you know, to the next one that connects them. But it's, it's, um, it's not a tight, like um, sort of dramatic arc kind of thing. Um, mm. And so that was kind of me just sort of like playing with the, 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 what the constraints were and what I thought would work there. But for quantum teens, quantum teens is, is a very tight story and just making sure you're pacing that for four issues. Like it's nice going and knowing how long you've got and you've got to fucking wrap this thing up, you know, by the fourth issue. Um, It'd be nice. It would have been nice to have that a little bit more. And um, I've got some other projects I'm talking about with other publishers where I'm going to have a little bit more space if those go through, um, which I'm really looking forward to um, because after Kim and Kim Volume Two, I don't really want to do another four issue series again. It's it's very short, um, mm-hmm. and it, you think it's going to be enough, and it never really ends up being enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, that being said, it could be the whole the whole ongoing problem of that work always inflates to fill the space allotted to it. And so yeah. I kind of wonder if there's ever enough. Yeah. So if I'm allotted six issues, will I be like, "Fuck, I needed seven. If I get twelve issues, yeah. I'll be like, "Fuck, I needed 14. Well, I look forward to watching you find out. So, I guess it certainly makes it easy. Like, we're going to just go and try this thing for four issues and, like, see where it takes you. And then, Actually, when I, it's I lost you for a second successful. there. I lost you for I'm a second sorry? there. I said, but I think, like, for new readers, it can be, like, an easy way to get folks on board. Like, 
this is a four issue miniseries, and if it's awesome, there will be another four issue miniseries. Yeah, and like I think we've, we're kind of reaching the point where comics are kind of kind of generally moving towards doing just like a bunch of different minis. It's been that way for a few years. And I think it's only Personally, getting more I, and more. Yeah. I remember like there was, um, I think Multiversity did, um, like Names Kim and Kim, one of the best like limited series 2016. And there's this discussion in it about how, it's like how do we even say what isn't, isn't a limited series anymore? Hmm. Because it seems like limited series become ongoing series, but they're announced as limited series, or it's a limited series, but you know it's going to get another volume next year, so is it really kind of thing? Um, yeah. And I think it's cool that we've kind of moved out of the um, just the endless ongoing um, model, because I think that means we're, we're getting a lot more opportunities for fresh different kinds of stories, and just, you know, always making sure there's an ish, another issue of Cable coming out. Um, <laughs> Somehow, there, like, there is actually cable. another issue of Cable why. coming out. What? Uh, yeah. I knew you were going to say Cable. I don't know why I knew that. But <laughs> That's I really weird that. because I never talk about Cable. I know. He's coming maybe back. It was just something about, like, the nine, maybe it was something about that era that I was just was like, it's like that kind of thing. But um, Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. He's the 90s of 90s characters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The 90s of 90s characters. So um, how did you guys get connected with each other as the writer and artist on the, oh, how did you, Eric, I guess I should say, get us get in touch to the project? Um, me and Magdalene met at HeroesCon this year for the first time. Um, and I was, I don't know if we'd ever talked online or, or really interacted. I was aware of her through um, Teeny Howard, who's a mutual friend of ours, who also is a, comic writer who's done a bunch of brilliant stuff yep, yeah. recently through Black Mask. Um, and But yeah, me and Magdalene met briefly at Heroes Con this year and we just kind of chatted um, you know, during drinks or whatever after the show one night. And then a couple weeks later she messaged me and was like, hey, I have a project I don't know if you'd be interested. And I said, sure, send me the synopsis, and she did, and I looked over it, and I'm like, this is totally up my alley. This is exactly the kind of thing that I like doing. And it just kind of started from there. And it was, that was actually a really big moment for me, because Eric is the first person that I got to work with who I was a fan of before him and him. So before I got, I broke in. Um, I was a really, really big fan of Medic. Um, and so this was kind of like, I was a little starstruck a little bit. Um, I'm like, I'm like, I'm working with Eric fucking Donovan. Um, and my wife's like, and my wife is like, who? And I'm like, shut up. You will know. Yeah. He is genius. Eric and then I brought out some medic, and she's like, this is disgusting. <laughs> the whole point. Yes. <laughs> Eric, who are some of your big influences visually in terms of your art? Oh man. Um, really, I fully expect your brother to have I mean, much quicker <laughs> response. Him. I know, me too. <laughs> Maybe he's not like hooked to his phone. <laughs> they might be like, out of his mail on his phone. They might be eating. I wanted to check in on oh, no, my brother totally Hello? There's something I'm What's going on? Somebody... <laughs> I think somebody yeah, I don't know what's going on. Mute, who might not be on mute. I mean, that's Can the opposite. Can we just hijack it? This show. <laughs> I think. Hold on. <laughs> I mean, I... Ethan said, this is for Steve to file away under his ID file. I need to put it in. I actually debated, <laughs> like, share this with Steve. 
doing uh, okay, I, think oh, have, like, I don't know if you're friends with them, but no. probably not. Uh, hold on one sec. <laughs> so when I did you, I debated I debated things. I got it. Got it. Sorry, hold on one moment. But this totally sounds yep. like Steve's funeral. Mm-hmm. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. I didn't use it during one of it. I'm sorry. Sorry about that listeners. What? Okay, that. No, I I think that like I think that when I think that the audio line for a person managing the call got unmuted, so we're back now. Um, but Eric was talking about his art influences. Um, was he? I mean, <laughs> he was. Go God ahead. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was. Um, man, I mean, obviously, I think any artist would tell you there's so many. It's it's like hard to point, but um, like when I think about you know growing up stuff that really struck me um, was like NCYS Treasure Island I used to look at all the time when I was a little kid. Um, stuff like that, I think, really visual, you know, influenced me a lot growing up. And then recently, um, and, you know, as I got older and started reading comics, Calvin and Hobbes and um, obviously like the Ninja Turtles shows and then different animes, Final Fantasy, you know, Yoshitaka Mono and um, Tetsuya Nomura growing up. And then I started looking at these Italian and French um, illustrators, you know, Mobius and Sergio Topi and, or Gerardo Zafino, who's from Argentina. And they're all people that really influenced a lot of my idea of, you know, blacks and brushwork and these different things. And it's still always this push pull for me between, you know, do I want like really heavy blacks here and a lot of like cool, crazy brushstrokes or, you know, make it something a little bit more clear line and sort of classic comic style work. But I've also always really loved concept art and video game design. And I have like all these, you know, I got the Rogue One concept art book for Christmas from my parents. And it's beautiful. You know, I love looking at that stuff. Um, There's this concept artist who does all kinds of cool sci-fi stuff for, you know, Bungie and he's Halo and all these other things named Sparth. And he has these three um, now books out called Structura, which is just a collection of his work. And I love looking through this stuff. Totally different. You know, it's digital paintings, but I love looking at that kind of thing Um, and just trying to glean all kinds of ideas about composition and shape language and that from all over. So, I don't know if that really quite answers the question. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Sergio Topi is probably my all-time favorite. Um, he's a Italian comic artist and illustrator. And he's absolutely brilliant. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, this, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and and uh, I always like hearing that from artists. You said you were in Savannah. Did you go to SCAD? I did, yep. Yep, I graduated... Uh, a little bit over three and a half years ago now. Is there a... a You're a, making me feel old. Artist? Yeah, I know. Well, I'm 31, okay. so... I'm not, oh. I'm not fresh out of high school. <laughs> okay. Uh, is there, like, an active comic scene in Savannah right now? Like, based around the school, or...? Yeah, I mean, definitely with the school here, there is a big comics community primarily centered with the school and there are a number of other comic artists um, that live here that, you know, in, in varying degrees, we kind of hang out together in different ways. Corin Howell, Stephen Green, Ian McGinty, 
Samantha Knapp, Fred and Megan, um, stressing Casey and Jarrett Williams, um, just off the top of my head. I know there's some other people and uh, Rashad Doucette. Um, and we all, you know, sometimes it's people you, you see like once every six months and it's like, Oh, Hey, you know, let's go grab a drink and other people, you know, maybe we get to hang out every couple of weeks or a month, but, um, yeah, I mean, because of the school, there's definitely that there, but there's not really any big comic shops or, um, you know, conventions or anything nearby that creates like that, that side of the community. It's more like, you know, artists that, and writer focused probably with the school, I'd say. Huh, that's really interesting. But I love hearing about other cities that have clusters of people doing creative work together, you know, like somewhere where rent probably isn't anything I could possibly relate to as a New Yorker, et cetera. Does New York have <laughs> but, a creative scene? Because I don't know anybody. Here? <laughs> I just I'm just saying I never get out of my fucking apartment. I wouldn't know. <laughs> but yeah, I know. I think it's an interesting phenomenon to see. So are there, like, who are the other, you guys are definitely people who identify as being part of, like, the up-and-coming class of new creators and comics. And I would love to get tips from you guys about who else we need to be reading who we might not know about. Um, obviously, Tini Howard, um, Katie mm-hmm. Rex. Um, everybody knows Paulina Ganeshow, but she's, I think, she's getting even more and more visibility. Um, Jeremy Whitley. Oh, um, he, his Unstoppable Wasp was so good. I know it's like Marvel. He was yeah. on our it podcast. It was so much he, fun. He was on the podcast a week ago today, no less. And uh, no yeah, Kenny Howard was on recently, too. Oh, and just on the subject of, on the subject of um, Unstoppable Wasp, Elsa Shredier is one of the sweetest human beings on the face of the earth. Um, I remember I actually got to meet her when I first got, back, got into, like, making comics really seriously back in 2014, I went to NYCC, and I met her when she was just kind of just, like, selling her wares, you know, anonymously. <laughs> and we chatted for a while, and we talked about doing the thing together, and then she ended up getting that issue on Cowl, and I never saw her again. Um, but I'm really, really glad that she's been really busting out. She's, she's so fucking great, and I think she's going to be a superstar. That's really cool. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, oh, you know, actually, can you talk a little bit about your work on Shade Changing Girl? Is that cool? Um, uh, yeah, what about it? Do you have a question? So for folks who don't know, uh, there's a new, a Young Animal has a new Shade Changing Girl, like, mini series, and Max did a backup story in it, the most recent issue, which is very cool. Um, it's, uh, so can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be? Um, yeah, I just kind of ran into Jamie Rich, the editor of, um, I guess the senior editor of Vertigo, and I guess he's the managing editor at Young Animal. I mean, I know Gerard Way runs the whole show. <laughs> I'm not really certain of the division of labor. Um, but anyway, yeah. Jamie, came, um, we just kind of met at the Harvey after party, if I remember correctly. Um, and he had already talked to Teeny Howard about it. And so I knew this might be a possibility. Um, and then he goes, how would you like to do a backup for shade? And we just talked for a little bit, you know, about what the idea was. And he, the whole thing is like, he, he really wants to get like um, women creative teams doing these sort of regular backups. Um, Yay. That, 
that sort of bring out obscure sort of back catalog DC characters and tell stories in which the theme is change. And so I obviously then pitched a Wonder Twins story that we Oh wrote. man, oh, what a slave. It was like, so there's so much potential with that. Perverse too. It was all about it was all about I'm trying to remember the damn names of the characters. Zan, right? The dude. Zana. Yeah. It was about yeah, Zan died. <laughs> and so it was just the other Graham Wonder, Morrison story. It was, it was just the other Wonder Twin. Like dealing with the fact that she can't use her powers anymore. Oh my and gosh! The cha- and that's the change. And I was like, "This is so fucking." Oh my great. god! And um, I wasn't. And he was. And he was like, "Yeah, we can't really do anything with them for rights reasons." And I was like, "Fuck." Okay, cool. And then I'm like, "How about Element Girl? She can change." <laughs> and then I had to. Come, and then I was like, "Okay, well, she died in her most famous <laughs> appearance. She died because um, Neil Gaiman killed her." And I'm like, what if yeah. I just undid all? And then what if I undid all of it? What if I, I took one of those beloved comics so in all of in all of comics and just like shat on it, right? Like obviously that wasn't my idea, but I was just like, okay, the universe has been rebooted a couple of times since then, and people come back to life. But she had this really weird, interesting death. So I was like, what if she knew she had come back to life? Um, and like she was trying to like cope with that reality and it doesn't, it doesn't exactly come through the way I wanted it to because we only had three pages and I had to like think of a really succinct story I could tell um, in three pages. Um, and so I kind of just kind of focused on this, on this sort of um, fantasy life where she could have the thing she always wanted. And then it doesn't really, it doesn't, it's not real. And like dealing with the unreality of it. Um, is the story. There was like, a, I remember I, I read one review for it. I can't remember. I think it was at, on AV club. Oh, that was where they described it. I can't remember if it, I can't remember if it was AV club. It might've been multiversity, but the review was um, that it's a story of someone trying to convince herself that she's convincing herself. And I was like, that's exactly correct. Oh, wow. Wow. I so love it's gotten a really good reception. I've been really proud of that. Because, like, the whole thing with, like, the famous Neil Gaiman story is, like, as per usual, like, there's a story of another female character going away. And I thought it was really great to see a woman to be like, okay, actually, here's another thing we could do with her. Yeah, actually, I was, like, scared shitless to do it. And I was really worried that I would, wouldn't get permission to use the character because, like, I was, like, you know, dicking around in canonical territory. Um, yeah. She's not like a well-known character. That's the one story everyone knows for her, and it's like beloved. Um, and I was just, I was really worried about like what happens when you start like undoing what Neil, you know, Gaiman has done. Um, what has Neil wrought, you know? Um, <laughs> and the thing is that like, I actually have like this whole story I want to tell with her if, if they let me. Um, but I'm just really interested in, like, in like, as someone who has, you know, has dealt with and has an ongo- ongoing depression issues, um, I was, like, I, I'm kind of bothered by the fact that this is a story about depression that ends in a suicide. Um, and that, that's her exit, mm-hmm. you know? That's what she wants. Yep. She gets it, and, that's, and we're supposed to be happy for her. Um, and I, I don't, I didn't want, I don't like that. Um, so... I want to do a story with Element Girl that's about coping 
with things you can't change. You see, and that's why it's so good that they let you do this character and that story in that way. Because it's, it, yeah, like everybody loves the original source material, but it's like really messed up when you think about it. But it's also the kind of thing that like great big man genius is going to just do because he can and that won't really look at how it actually might reflect on people in the world as we live our lives. So that's my... What's really funny is it violates the... Uh, Neil Gaiman. It violates the first thing I learned in a creative writing class in college, which is suicides are a, are a cheap way out. Um, mm-hmm. Like for your character. Not like... I'm not trying to make like a, a statement about psychological health, but as a, <laughs> for a character. For a character, yeah. a suicide is a cheap way out because it's a... Um, it's you sort of... Um, abandoning your responsibility as a writer to resolve, to figure out how to resolve a situation. Um, I'm not saying Neil Gaiman was doing that. There, it's a really complicated story, and you can sort of see how the character gets there. But it was a, it's a character that who's constructed in that situation as someone who can't have a way out because she won't have a way out. And I started thinking, well, like, okay, like, like for, for my incarnation of the character, she's kind of realizing that she can't stay dead. So, like, even suicide's not her way out. So then what's the next step? And so if I ever get to do that comic, um, yeah, I would be sort of trying to figure that out with her. What's her next step? Yeah, and it really fit in with the whole, like, because in Shade the Changing Girl, she's, like, like this um, alien in the girl's body, and she's, like, trying to create her own, like, happy reality. And it just, like, fit really well. It's, like, listening to an out, like, a single, and there's, like, a really, a B-side that, like, feeds into it. And, yeah, I, I love the Young Animal books. Like, I can't believe they're published by DC, like, when I read them. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say that about my publisher. No, no, but I, I, love, I love what DC is doing, but it's just, like, I, I guess this is what people felt like when, like, Sandman and Animal Man and whatever, like, Vertigo was first, first coming out. I'm cool that I yeah. get to, like, experience that now. It's, like, pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Instead of just, like, in, yeah. oh, that happened back in history. <laughs> yeah, the thing that I really love about the Young Animal line in this really big way is that it's mining the DC back catalog and just kind of running with shit. Like, right. like, like, I absolutely love there's a fucking Cave Carson book. Oh, it's such a fun book. Like, what were the fucking odds of that, man? Yeah, that's a bizarre choice. What? I wasn't familiar with the character before, but I know the folks on our side really liked it. Yeah, I know. I thought it was. I thought it was like an original character, but I'm like, oh, I guess he teamed up with Superman back because I guess kids in the fifties were into like the Daredevil kind of character, like the like stunt kind of characters, I guess. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, old pop culture is fascinating me so much. Okay, okay. it's called cool. like science genre. hero. Science oh, yeah, hero. You know, yeah. you get, you get, you know, you get, um, yeah, Challenges exactly. of the Unknown, um, Dr. Quest, um, oh, yeah. Tom Strong is a modern incarnation. I love science heroes. Mm-hmm. There's a background villain in Kim and Kim who's a science hero gone wrong. Can you tell us who it is? If it's someone from the new series oh, or now? No, it's in the it's in the first it's in the first run. You see him in a in a flashback in issue three. He's Juna's arch nemesis, Adam Atomic. Oh my god! Yeah, 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 yeah. He's got like the he's got like the Reed Richards like gray hair and gray hair, yeah. Yeah. 
that makes a lot of sense. I was originally like yeah. planning on. I was originally hoping to do a one shot about Juna and Mina that would involve them fighting Adam Atomic, and it didn't go. It didn't. It didn't happen. But mm-hmm. I put a lot of thought into it, and that guy made sure he made it into the book. Yeah, I would love well, like, Kim and Kim like extended universe EU thing because of all the planets mm-hmm. and creatures and stuff. Like, <laughs> but that'd be cool. Like one day. Yeah, maybe. that's true. There's like so much room for that in, in there. A lot of no, yeah, I, still being in a small space. Yeah, and I would really, really love to. Like, I have, I like, I when, every time I come up with a character who appears like for more than like a single panel. I, I generally know like quite a bit about them um, and think that it would be fun to do a comic about them by the time they make it onto the page. Um, do you have like a Kim like, and Kim two... like story Bible or something somewhere? Like No, I mean, not, not really. Just kind of like, as I'm working, I think through these characters, oh, yeah. like, like there's some minor characters who appear in no issues three and four. And that's the Kim's friends, you know, Kathleen and Gretchen. Um, Kathleen's a really big deal, and I'm absolutely in love with her, and she looks exactly like Teeny Howard, so of course I am. Um, (laughs) But, you know, like, but, but like, when I, I start off with a fun name, and I just start writing these little character descriptions around them, and I start thinking through their relations with everybody, just because I need to know all that stuff for how the scene's going to play out. Like, if I don't know how they relate to each other and to the Kims, and what their jobs are, and, you know, how they relate to their jobs, I don't know how they're going to relate to how the Kims do their jobs and, and all that stuff. If I don't think through all that, I can't write the damn scene. I see that. Like, it's definitely all in your work, and it pays off, and I think it's one of the reasons why people have so much fun digging into it. So, We even got to joke around potential planet names last night on Twitter. So, <laughs> Don't worry, that's going to happen. Yay, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna do to I'm gonna do a I'm gonna do a planet called you know Tynan the called Tynan Four. Yay, named for a certain writer who has worked with Eric on the Mimetic. <laughs> oh. I don't well, know when or not. There's no there's actually no room for Tynan Four in Kim and Kim Volume Two, which all takes place on one oh. planet. Um, wait, oh, so there's a Kim planet. and Kim that takes place on one planet. That's that's yeah, one crazy planet. talk. Well, I mean, like, I wanted to, like, dig in. Like, the first, like, Kim and Kim is, like, this big travelogue. Um, and I wanted to, like, do something that was really set in one time and place. And so the whole thing only takes place over a couple of days. And um, really around one city on one planet. Oh, nice. It's like a, like a bottle miniseries. That, that'll be fun. Like, kind of see what Kim and I Kim mean, like, like, a, really makes them tick, yeah. It's a it's a small I mean it's definitely it's it's a it's um much more fraught emotionally um it really really centers Kim D and and uh, a past relationship of hers um I guess it like Kim and Kim Volume Two is really all about Kim and Kim having to deal with the fact that there are people in the world who aren't Kim and Kim because oh. <laughs> <laughs> they 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 live in this little bottle you know. Like, their van is their whole fucking universe, and they just interact with people on an as-needed basis. And so this is about them realizing that that's not how the universe actually works. Yeah. That'll be fun. The last shot of Kim and Kim is still my mind. Like, the like them hugging them, like, yay, friends. <laughs> and I was sad because I thought there wasn't going to be another mini-series, but then I'm like, yay, volume two. 
<laughs> oh, I knew there. I knew there was going to be another one. When I wrote that, I don't think I could have written it on that. I could, don't think I could have written it as that downer and ending if I didn't think I'd get another shot. But I mean, I think you just assume going forward that Kim and Kim is probably always going to have downer endings. It's, I am cool wow. with that. It's a life like pretty much. So I mean, series of down endings. <laughs> oh, gosh. Like I'm a really like <laughs> morbid, morose person. <laughs> gosh. Well, it's definitely not what people would assume. Wow, it got dark. <laughs> and then you read Kim and Kim, and you're like, oh. Yeah. Oh, everyone's miserable. Yeah. I don't know. They're having really a like good dark. time talking to each other. Yeah. What? I really, I really like dark things that are like, that uh, have like bright colors. Just like really dark content, but just like bright colors. So, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a I mean, neo kind of. Yeah, I mean, Kim and Kim is really in this in this really big way, always about kind of confounding expectations, um, both thematically and in terms of presentation. So, like the art looks like it's from a kid, like a from a sort of an all ages comic, but it's all <laughs> yeah. sex and it's all sex and blood and cursing, um, and murder, um, and then it, it's a visually just bright, really poppy book. And it's very kinetic and energetic and jokey, but everyone's sad all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, all these things are built into the book, like right from the um, right in its DNA. It's a, it's a, it's a book that's very much about being conflicted about where you are in the world. So, I mean, I guess it's not surprising all stuff comes through in its presentation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I still like that. I like that there were some bright moments. And quantum teams are go like the pinks are still there. So I'm like, hey, probably Claudia Agor is a colorist is pink. <laughs> I demand oh, she's doing pink. a great job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm I actually her, in the process of pitching a book with her, right? Like with her as the principal artist at Oni. So we'll see if that goes through. Ooh. Yeah. She should made Kim and Kim like just from like the pink hair and the, the weird alien stuff. Like, yeah, she, I mean, made that book. Now, Claudia is my favorite human. <laughs> Aw. Sorry, She's pretty Eric. amazing. We love you, Claudia. <laughs> I call Claudia my, my comics wife, and Eric Aww. is my platonic comics boyfriend. <laughs> That's so cute. Aw. No, thank you guys for joining us again. Can you let our listeners know where they can find you on the internet? Twitter. You want to go first, Max? Yeah. And your Twitter account is? At Mags with Sags with two Gs at the end there. And you can find me on Twitter also at Eric Donovan. That's E-R-Y-K-D-O-N-O-V-A-N. And also, if you want stuff that's not me, like ranting and sharing lots of political stuff along with my art, um, you can follow my Instagram, which is at uh, the.eric.donovan. Um, again, E-R-Y-K-D-O-N-O-V-A-N. Cool. And Logan? Um, you can find me at Midnighter Bay. It's Midnighter, like a DC character, and Bay, B-A-E. There's a long story with involving Steve Orlando with that name, but yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, of course there is. That's yeah, so and basically, cute. yeah, basically, my entire feed is like me, like staying for my favorite like indie comics and stuff, and I don't know. That's <laughs> yeah, pretty. And <laughs> Yeah. Definitely worth following. And graphic policy, of course, is at graphic policy, uh, both our website and our Tumblr and our Twitter account. I myself am Ilana underscore Brooklyn. That's E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn on Twitter. And if you guys are looking for more great reviews of comics, both big and small, come to graphicpolicy.com. If you want to catch up on this podcast, it's going to be on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes in the next couple hours or so if you came in late and want to catch up from the beginning or if you want to share it with others. And you can get all of our other episodes there as well. On Monday, we're going to be joined by another great guest, who is Vita Ayala, who is writing her first big series, big miniseries. Yes, she's awesome. For DC Comics, going to be writing Amanda Waller and Suicide Squad, and I'm so excited. So, Vita's the coolest person in the world. She's going to kick my ass as a guest. I'm very excited (laughs) about it. But there'll be no ass kicking in the podcast. So, Sorry, uh, it's been, it has been foretold. And, uh, <laughs> have a great week, everybody, and keep it geeky. Thank you so much, Elena and Morgan. Or Thank Logan. you so Sorry. much. <laughs> Bye. Lana. Yep. Bye. All right. Bye. No problem. And thanks, everyone. Sorry about that sound challenge in the middle of it. Yeah, that was weird, but whatever. To pick up when we pick it up where we went. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much Bye, for having everyone. us. This is a really this is really fun. Yay, thank you. I think so too. All right. Peace out. Bye.